Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Fine Chow, a Chinese restaurant in the town of Haven, is known for its food and its boisterous owner, Big Leo Chow. Leo is loud, assertive, and aggressive, sexually explicit in a way unmatched in his three sons, Dago, Ming, and James, who all take after and despise their father in differing ways. The Chow family are the protagonists of Lan Samantha Chang's newest novel, appropriately titled The Family Chow. What starts as a family drama turns into a crime novel with references to the struggles and challenges faced by the Chinese-American community with, and with echoes to other classic works of literature. Lan Samantha Chang is the author of a collection of short fiction, Hunger, and two novels titled Inheritance and All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost. Her work has been translated into nine languages and has been chosen twice for the best American short stories. She has received creative writing fellowships from Stanford University, Princeton University, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. She is the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop. In this interview, Samantha and I talk about the family chow, its focus on the Chinese-American population, and how it uses classic ideas to explore that community's place in the United States. So, Samantha, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian View Books podcast. I'd like to start with the four men at the core of the family chow, um, and perhaps let, let's start with the three sons, you know, Dago, Ming, and James. How do you kind of make these three sons different in the book? How do they differ from each other in their personalities, their temperaments, um, their attitudes towards uh, the restaurant, the community, and their father? It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today, Nicholas. Um, I wanted to write a story in which I was able to show the way that children who are born years apart in a family with the same parents can develop into very different people based on what their parents were going through, you know, the stages of life that their parents were encountering when they were born and and raised. So in my family, Leo and Winnie, um, Leo and Winnie Chow come to the United States and they are filled with hope. Uh, Leo in particular um, wants to become very rich and they also are filled with hope for their first child, who they think is going to be, you know, the biggest, the smartest, the most high achieving child. And he will, you know, make them look good as parents. And and then and Dago, their big dog, their first child, grows up to be very different from the way that they were hoping. Uh, probably, you know, in some ways because they spoiled him a little bit. Um, he goes off into the world de- determined to do something somewhat impractical, filled with confidence, and he, he wants to be a musician and he fails. So he comes back to the Midwest to live over the restaurant and cook with and for his father. Um, 
as a result, uh, he is has spent more time with his father than the other children in the family, and he's very, in some ways, very much like his father externally. You know, loud, brash, big, um, kind of crude. Uh, and he's working. He's been working in the restaurant now for six years. Um, his brother Ming, the middle child, uh, desperate to get out of Haven, Wisconsin, this midwestern town in which his parents have raised him, feels a little sort of put upon because he's a, a middle kid and not, you know, the oldest child. Um, and so he kind of escapes uh, the family and goes to New York City and becomes you know, rich compared to the rest of them. He works in finance. Uh, he sort of, he kind of pushes away his identity as an Asian American because for him, it's connected so much to his parents and connected to having grown up in this Midwestern town where the Chows were one of the only Chinese families in the town when they were young. And uh, so he's, I would say, less contented um, in many ways with who he is than the other characters in the family. Um, their younger brother, James, is a very sweet kid, having been basically brought up by two loving older brothers, almost entirely in English, um, in the way that some youngest children are. Parents don't have as much time to, to speak to them and teach them uh, Chinese. And so James's basic issue is that um, he, he feels sort of... Um, he wants just to be loved and to be a big part of, of, of his family. But in, in, in a way he, he wants to be an ordinary person. Um, he very much loves his family. He wants everything to be okay. So you have three kids who are really different, even though their parents are the same. And they also have very different ideas about their identity as Chinese Americans. Um, James, although he looks Chinese American is, you know, entirely without the linguistic skills that he might have had had he grown up closer to his parents. Um, so ultimately, I think that the novel is an attempt to show the way that a family can absorb, members of a family can absorb and reject different parts of their Chinese identities in the United States. You know, I... I'd like to kind of move on to talk about the the patriarch of the family, you know, Lee, Big Leo Chow. And, you know, one of the, you kind of think about all these like stereotypical, like um, first generation immigrant narratives where, you know, the fa like the father is very stoic. Maybe he's, um, maybe he's not very well spoken, but works hard, treats his kids hard, but, you know, like all of the stereotypes you think about when it comes to first generation uh, immigrant narratives. Um, Leo Chow's not like that at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. What if you might talk about that character? Sure. I mean, Leo Leo was the, the first character of the book. He just arrived when I started trying to write um, a new project. He, he stomped up the stairs just the way he does in the novel and starts to swear and yell at his oldest child. Um, I think that for me, <laughs> Leo does not seem unusual at all. I have a very, I had um, before he died, a very um, expressive, you know, very loud, verbal Chinese American, you know, Chinese father. He was born in Beijing. 
Um, he, you know, lived through a great deal in the middle of the 20th century, came to Taiwan and then to the United States in the mid 50s to go to school. And, you know, he had four daughters. And I think that um, this made him the only man in the family, which must have been a little uh, anxiety provoking for him because we were the family that really integrated our town in the Midwest. We were the first Chinese family to arrive um, in our town. And I think he felt this need to kind of be protective of us. He yelled at us a lot, um, told us like what to do. He tried really hard to make us safe. And we kind of, some of us kind of rebelled against him. Um, So I grew up with a dad that was not the stereotypical immigrant dad. And when it came time to write about this family, I realized that I wanted to create a character who felt true to life for me. Um, And that meant going against a lot of sort of literary conventions. Um, It felt to me like I wanted to write about not just the kind of quiet desperation of the average immigrant family that, that you see portrayed in literature, but I wanted to write about a noisy, noisy and unhappy immigrant family. Um, and so I also wanted to write about a family that was funny because we were funny. My dad was a very, very witty guy. I mean, he could make jokes in two languages. Um, funny, you know, he could, he, he could make any situation like wry or ironic or just, um, you know, funny in a slapstick way. And I wanted to put that into my book. You know, I I was thinking about 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 the family child, and I came to the realization that I believe um, all the main characters, um, certainly all the characters, any kind of really significant role, with with one exception, um, are Chinese or Chinese American. Um, and I guess does that does that kind of allow you to kind of tell the story of the family child um, in a different way than you might otherwise would have if it was not. If it, it wasn't almost exclusively kind of Chinese characters. That's so interesting. There are actually two um, non-Chinese characters in the book, and they're both Brenda and Jerry Stern. Jerry's the lawyer. That's Brenda's right. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. But they're both kind of integrated into the family. Like, I wanted to make a story in which the Chinese characters were the majority. That was my goal. And I think that in writing about this family and its sort of intimate concerns, I was able to sort of make most of the um, characters not worried about being sort of seen or on display for anybody but themselves. Um, Brenda and Jerry are kind of like honorary members of the family. They're white characters who have kind of taken on roles in this Chinese family according to the way that the Chinese family wants them. You know, they basically do what the family they're they're what the family wants them to be. Brenda works at the restaurant and she's she's basically one of the characters falls in love with her. Um, but, and, and, but, but when push comes to shove in this family, she sort of just bears down and does what she has to do. Like all of the other, uh, Chinese characters. And she's like an honorary member and Jerry, the same way Jerry is big Leo Chow's only friend. And he's a huge, huge, you know, Chinese food addict. And he comes to the restaurant 
all the time and basically supports Leo in every way because he kind of knows that without Leo working and without, you know, if Leo gets into trouble, then his source of food, the food that he likes, is gone. But that being said, you know, the kind of, it's not quite the the relationship between the Chinese non-Chinese community, but kind of how the Chinese community sees itself and how the non-Chinese community then sees the Chinese community. I mean, that plays an important role in the family child, kind of especially in its second half when we start dealing with the with the crime part of the novel. Um, you know, stereotypes are thrown around, people play on racial imagery. Um, you, you know, I, I guess, what were the sorts of experiences or I guess things in the news or like what were you kind of drawing upon it in building out that town and the Chinese community's place in that community? So I grew up in a small city in Wisconsin, Appleton, Wisconsin, which, as I said, um, was predominantly white. In fact, it was overwhelmingly white when I was growing up. And when I was a small child, um, we were the first Chinese family in the town. And I'm just very familiar with the way that um, a majority white community would encounter uh, Asian and, you know, Asian immigrants and even Asian looking people. So one of the things I wanted to show in the book is that that the the majority community doesn't really pay attention to the family. They go to the restaurant, they eat at the restaurant because it's got really good food. And they never really look at the family that's serving them the food. Um, That drama in the first half of the book is entirely within the family itself. But as you mentioned, something happens. There's, there's, there's a serious incident that takes place in the middle of the book that leads to um, the family's story becoming public. Um, You know, it's on the internet, it's in the news uh, and it's, and it's gossiped about in town and the family is then seen and the entire community of Chinese American people in the town is then seen differently by the characters around them, by the the world, by the non-Chinese, non-Asian world around them. Um, And I wanted to make that really clear because I think that Asian American immigrants sort of, they struggle with this in a particular way, the issue of being seen in a certain way by majority culture. Um, They're seen as outsiders. They're seen as people who... Um, are coming from another location, even if they've been born in the U.S. James, and James, who you know doesn't speak English, is assumed to be. Um, I'm sorry, James, who doesn't speak Chinese, is assumed to be a Chinese speaker by anyone who sees him, including the other, you know, including Chinese strangers. Um, there's a there's there's a sense of being seen in the second half of the book that I, I wanted to show in a particular way by using the ways in which um, the majority culture s- sometimes sees Asians, you know, all those different stereotypes that are then sort of projected upon the family when it's in the news, um, that sort of, it in many ways determines the fate of one of the characters in the family. And it it's very, very much 
sort of something I wanted to describe, discuss, um, unpack in the in the book in the second half. So the the book is divided into two parts. The first part is um, they see themselves. It's about the the family drama, the intimate family drama involving only a couple of characters from the world around them, and then the second the second half of the book is the world sees them. So, you know, the restaurant is, is such a kind of a, a classic, um, I guess, setting for a story about immigrants. Um, you know, immigrants move to the U.S., they set up a restaurant. Um, I feel like that, that, that seems like kind of a very, a very classic narrative. Um, but I guess what, what drove your decision to kind of make a Chinese restaurant kind of the, kind of the focal setting for, for your story? Sure. One of the first ideas I had that led to the novel was a note that I found in my um, writing log from maybe 2005, before that. And it said, uh, the story takes place in one evening. It is a huge dinner party. Um, I I was fascinated by um, the idea of telling a story setting a scene and then just sticking in the scene for, you know, pages and pages, dozens of pages. Um, it kind of like a, a long, a very long scene. And I thought that having a dinner would be ideal. Then later, um, years later, when I was thinking about a setting for this family, um, I needed to have, I mean, ultimately the book is a succession drama. It's about passing a business from one generation to another and whether or not that's going to happen and whether the business will move into the future and how the family will cope with this. And the ideal business for this to be was simply a restaurant because it enabled me to have my huge dinner, um, which turns into the giant Christmas party in the middle of the book. Um, and then it also enabled me to have the succession drama. So you mentioned kind of in the, in, in the very first um, answer. The, sorry, well, the very first question uh, you mentioned Ming. Um, another character I want to bring up is Catherine, who's um, who's Dago's fiance. Well, fiance. Although I think that that definition is somewhat debatable, depending on where you are in the book. Um, but but that seems to be it's 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 very like like they, they both have such different attitudes to um, to their Chinese identity. Um, Ming. Very, I think people explicitly tell him, like, you're trying to run away from your Chinese identity. Um, you know, you don't want to be seen as Chinese. You are running away from it. Um, you're going to New York. You're being, you're working in finance. And you do not want to um, I think someone says you only date, like, you don't date Chinese women, for example. And then you have Catherine, who in the book is, I mean, she's she's an um, adoptee from China who is constantly accused of trying to attach herself to the Chow family in a way to connect with her Chinese characters that she otherwise had no way of, of, of connecting to by being an adoptee. Um, and it's like, it's like, I wonder, I, I just want to kind of talk through kind of these, these struggles with identity, whether Chinese identity or other, or, or any other identity that, that seem to kind of become good fodder for kind of stories about second generation immigrants. Sure. I mean, Ming, who is sort of in love with Catherine, even though Catherine is connected romantically to his older brother, um, 
fights with Catherine all the time and tells her, look, you you escaped immigration by being adopted. You don't have to deal with this craziness. Like, get out of here. Like, don't be friends with us. Get away from our family. And and you do, I mean, as a reader, as a as a reader, I do wonder sometimes whether Catherine is only with Dago, is so attached to Dago because she is, you know, basically into his family. He's, from her perspective, he's part of this big, noisy, lively, um, passionate uh, family of people who are all Chinese by, you know, by ethnicity and um, they're the parents. She's kind of in love with the mother, Winnie, because Winnie is the the Chinese mother she never had. And Winnie, who's only had three sons and, you know, possibly longed for a daughter um, to Winnie. Ch- Catherine is her her daughter that she never had. So Catherine's Catherine um, plays this really important role in the in the in the novel and in the family in that she um she sees the good in them um, and she, what she sees that she loves in them is their Chinese Americanness. Uh, you know, I think she probably would have gone to China and studied more there and, and lived there for a while. Um, and maybe she would have learned more about Chinese culture in a direct way, but because she is a, went straight to law school and got a pretty demanding job, she's sort of forced to, um, be friends with our our family, and you know Ming Ming criticizes her for this, but but she very very um, sort of justifiably um, turns on him and says, you know, you are a racist, like you hate being Chinese American, and you know you're just trying to escape your own, you know, your background yourself by basically going to New York and making a ton of money and not even coming home except maybe once a year, uh, not being close to your family. Like she, she, she gets on him in the same way. I, I find Ming to be a particularly sort of tragic character because despite his efforts to escape his family, it remains a fact that others do not see him as white. He longs to be, you know, just totally anonymous, white and rich. <laughs> Um, from childhood, uh, this is his desire and one of the reasons that he leaves the family. But the fact is, he's never going to be seen as as a white person, and and uh, and ultimately, he knows that. Um, and I would say that uh, these two characters work out um, a lot of a lot of issues that many many people. I mean, I would hate to say that they are working out second generation issues because that seems very. Um, clinical. I think they're very unique. And I certainly wouldn't want to say that all second generation, um, you know, immigrants suffer from this particular set of problems. But I I found it like a lot of fun to write about them. Um, I find them to be a, a good couple, like, I'm rooting for them, I want them to get together and eventually marry. <laughs> I think for one of my, one of my last questions, you know, a lot of the a lot of the so some of the marketing around the family chow, a lot of the reviews for the family chow kind of mention uh, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, um, which is a reference that would have meant more to me if I remembered anything about Dostoevsky's novel after reading it in college. Um, although I will say after reading your novel, it turned out I remembered more about the book than I sure. had thought I remembered. <laughs> 
Yeah, sure. I think it was being, I mean, it be, being like, I, I remember nothing about this book. And then I read Family Child. I was like, <laughs> oh, wait, now I remember there's a dad that is also a bad person. Um, yes, dad. But, um, yeah, exactly. Like, like the, I, so. So, in fact, reading your book reminded me of things about brothers about brothers Karamazov that I'd forgotten. But for those who've never, well, first of all, for those who've never read the classic novel, you know what makes Dostoevsky's work so kind of important in literature. And but more importantly, you know, do we gain something by, I mean, more than resetting, but kind of reinterpreting, taking some of these classic ideas, classic narratives, classic relationships, and kind of transforming them into into putting them in very different circumstances, very different settings with very different people involved. Sure. I mean, the reason I um, decided to sort of make this book in conversation with the Brothers Karamazov is that I love that book so much. So in a way, it was just for me, the pleasure of bringing that book alive um, in my generation with the circumstances, um, you know, in a, similar to the ones I'd grown up in, in my small Wisconsin hometown. Um, I think that uh, it was just a huge pleasure and a labor of love for me. It turned out though, that in bringing the book alive in, you know, America, contemporary America, I was able to illustrate so many things about um, the condition that is familiar to me in which I grew up um, that I kind of went with it and took a lot of pleasure in it. And the thing about this, this, this particular novel is that it was, um, it was one of the early crime novels. It was a predecessor of, of so much of what we um, are familiar, so familiar with now, Uh, you know, the, sort of contentious family leading to a crime and then the aftermath and the, the sort of attempts to find, you know, the source of the crime, the character, and to seek some kind of justice and who's guilty and who's not. Um, all of this really started with Dostoevsky. This book and Crime and Punishment are prototypes for so much of what we now take for granted. And part of the pleasure was, um, was, discovering, you know, rediscovering this and sort of working on the different tropes that have emerged from it, but putting them into an entirely Asian American context. Um, you know, it, I think, I think the book also appealed to me enormously because of the idea of three siblings. Um, I mean, my, unlike in the Dostoevsky novel, my characters have the same parents, but, um, but they're very different uh, regardless. And, you know, having grown up in a family of same-sex siblings, um, I found a huge amount of, you know, a, a lot to engage and interest me as I was writing in, in showing the way dynamics among siblings plays out, plays out in this particular kind of story, the, the particular kind of uh, crime story. So, yeah, it was, it was, you know, I didn't set out on it to create a project of a certain nature. I set out on it because I loved uh, the novel so much and it infused itself into me over a period of years. And at some point I just sort of realized that I had potentially the ability to make it new. Um, and, you know, it's just a lot of fun. 
so I, I want to end by kind of bringing in, I guess, kind of the Chinese American community kind of outside of of the novel itself. You know, Chinese Americans, Asian Americans more broadly. Um, you know, in one sense, they're seeing kind of greater political say, greater cultural representation. Um, but also they're coming under, you know, harassment, violence, um, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, due to, um, you know, I guess tensions between China and the U.S., um, bleeding into, I think, effects on the Chinese, Chinese American community in the United States. Um, you know, I, I admit I, I don't know the, the timeline of when you were writing the book, but do you think works like the family Chow, you know, do they do they feel different? Do they resonate differently now, um, given the different circumstances that Chinese and Chinese Americans kind of find themselves in? Sure. I mean, the book took 12 years um, to complete and publish. So um, it was a labor of, you know, love written in the middle of life you know, during a very busy time for me. Um, and I understand that now with its publication um, after COVID-19 and the terrible violences that are being visited upon Asian Americans fairly regularly at this point, um, that the book could be read, you know, as topical. I, for me, these issues have always been topical. When I was younger, much younger, um, Vincent Chin, a Midwestern uh, Chinese-American man, was murdered uh, in Michigan. And having grown up in Wisconsin, um, you know, I was highly aware of this violence and clearly anti-American violence taking place, you know, in a neighboring state. It was one of the first um, Asian-American stories that came on the news in my life for me that I was aware of. And so, and having grown up also in a town where it was not unusual to be like teased or, you know, even harassed by strangers because of the way I looked and having watched my own father being, um, I would say harassed by people who didn't know him at all in public places. Um, I felt that, I mean, I, I think the world of the novel, the issues in the novel, and the issues that are now facing Asian Americans um, feel entirely constant, and um, they feel to me part of the the reality I know. So I think with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Lon Samantha Chang, author of The Family Chow. Samantha, I actually have two final questions for you, which is, which are, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Oh, um, well, I think my book is widely available at this point. Um, it was a real pleasure to find it on Barack Obama's summer reading list for 2022. Um, and as a result, I think bookstores are carrying it. I think libraries are, um, you know, have it on their on their shelves or they're ordering it. And also the paperback for the book is coming out um, on September 20th. Uh, so it should be widely available. Um, and in terms of my previous works, you can order them. Um, they're very different from this book. Each book I write is 
is really different from the book before. And I'm sure the next one will be nothing like this one. But, uh, but in, so in other words, I have no idea what my next book will be, but I'm pretty sure that it'll be an entire change from the family Chow, much as I enjoyed writing that book. Uh, I, I sort of work on one thing at a time and reconceive everything in between projects. So I, look forward as much as anyone else to finding out what my next book will be. But thank you very much for um, having me. And uh, I, I hope that people will enjoy my book. Um, keep in mind that it's supposed to be funny. So if you see anything and you're not sure whether it's okay to laugh, um, please do so. Feel free to do so. You have my permission. I hadn't realized Obama put it on his summer books of the year list. How, yeah. how does that feel? Oh my God. I mean, like sometimes when I'm feeling sort of low, I imagine Barack Obama sitting in a chair reading my book and it cheers me up. You know, just the idea that he might've found it in the first place and then actually read it is huge. I mean, it, it matters a lot to me. And it's funny because when Obama was um, running for president in 2008, uh, my family had recently moved to Iowa City where we now still live. And my daughter was a year old when he came through town and I dressed her up in this red head to toe outfit, including a hat. And I stood in the front row of this sort of community group in the back. After he does his public appearances, he usually goes into the back and thanks the community workers. And so we were there right in the front row and he came straight over to the baby and picked her up and held her up. And I have a really blurry photo from this moment um, you know, but I always felt like he was a part of her life. And then to think that he, without even realizing it, or even probably remembering it, entered our lives a second time in this way is really kind of, it. it's sort of moving for me. I, I feel like he's a part of my life, even though I'm not a part of his life. And I suppose um, that's what happens when when there's like a very a significant public figure, people, people sort of have personal stories about them. And I, I feel really lucky to have uh, such a specific set of stories. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And there are many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review Books podcast is on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a conversation with Matthew Teller, author of Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, a new biography of the old city. But before then, thank you so much, Samantha, for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs>